Welcome to FinTech Insider Insights, brought to you from Cybos, which this year comes from the Excel Center in London. In this week's show, we want to celebrate Cybos coming to our hometown by bringing you some interviews with some top London-based fintechs. We want to celebrate London as a global fintech hub. Funnily enough, we just made a documentary about that and talk through the work of these awesome companies, why is London so special to them, and what the future might hold. We spoke this week to Andrew Budd from iProve, Simon Curitin from Funding Options, Todd Latham from Currency Cloud, and Simon Winchester from Jumio. And we want to kick things off with a very special announcement that was made at Cybos on Monday. And we were luckily enough to speak to two of the companies involved with when Jason Bates caught up with Tom Squire from ShieldPay and Amir Noorin from Oak North to tell us a little bit more about their brand partnership. Over to you, Jason. Welcome to FinTech Insider Interviews. Today, we've got a, a great announcement from Cyboss 2019. We're here with Oak North and ShieldPay, and you guys have announced something. Yes, really excited about a new partnership we've just formed and just announced this morning, bringing together two, two new fintechs, really creating waves in, in their own, own sectors, helping to secure clients from fraud by digitizing escrow and providing that help, that transparency that's currently lacking in the market. Great. So I guess Oak North, we know from you know, being arguably the most successful challenger bank in the UK, grown rapidly, very much in that deposit savings and loans to small businesses or you know, scale-up businesses. How did this come about and how does escrow feature in that user journey for one of your typical customers? Sure, yeah, perfect question. So uh, like you said, a lot of the focus on our partnerships has been on the deposit space. This is specifically, like you said, on, on the SME lending piece. We've had this use case for a while coming up around uh, from our borrowers as well as some of the solicitors involved in the transactions we do in the lending space uh-huh. around can we mimic escrow functionality. Obviously, escrow is a US term, but, but, sure. but it's perfectly legitimate here as well. And so we approached ClearBank, who again, we did a partnership recently for agency banking with and payments. And we approached them to say, do you know anyone we could layer on top of you to provide that escrow functionality and, and introduce us to ShieldPay. And ShieldPay took us through what they were both doing retail as well as on the legal side. And we asked them if they could bring it to our borrower. So the use case is, let's say a property developer wants to do a substantial amount of money. So we're SME lending, let's say 10 million pounds. And that 10 million is gonna go to develop that land into property that's gonna be sold off. There's big chunks of money that need to be paid out to purchase the land, to, to laborers, to material, to architects, to designers. How do we know that money's gonna go to who it's supposed to go on the date it's supposed to go out to without lots of manual reconciliation and phone calls? And that's still, anything manual has a, a fraud risk sure. element to it. That's where these guys come in. They'd already built that functionality. We've just brought a new use case to them and said, can you apply this to us? And, and that's where you guys have stepped in. Yes, because we've already got experience in the legal sector. We have about 50 law firms using us on a daily basis from daily matters to M&A transactions. So high value payments is already something that we're, we're pretty comfortable with now. It's just it's the exact same problem of a lack of transparency. As soon as you send money from your account, no idea where it's going. Could have gone to the wrong account, mule accounts, etc. This really does provide that safety net of verifying the other side so you know the money is going exactly where you want it to go. So what fascinates me is that Here's three companies coming together at different yeah. layers in the stack, yeah. ultimately to provide a better end-to-end journey Correct. 
where actually, you know, a, a normal SME lender would just say, here you go, here's the money, like off, off you go. And suddenly you're getting embedded in the transaction and the administration of it. Is, is there more to come in that kind of uh, way? There is. We can't speak too much about our, our next phases, but there are... Not yet, but there's really exciting things coming. Obviously, both of us are expanding quite quickly, so there's obviously some alignment there. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of things going to be happening. So Yeah, I mean, if you tuned. think about what we've got to play with, with ClearBank, we've got real-time payment infrastructure. With ShieldPlay, we've got the security element, the fact that all parties can log in, verify. If you blend those two together, you can get a feel for the kind of things we're playing with and, and the next phases we're going to roll out. Now, I can't let you go without asking the question that I'm sure people will be asking, which is, commercial model-wise, how do companies come together, especially when they're providing this end-to-end -end journey, and have, I guess, an equitable amount yeah. of money that gets distributed to people? How, how does it work to, to make these kinds of things work? With partnerships in general, the reason why partnerships fail is because someone is trying to get something without showing what the benefit is to the other person. They have to be mutually beneficial. For us, the benefit is we want to round out the product suite we offer to our borrowers, as well as reduce fraud risk for ourselves. So our borrowers get the benefit of, they can actually use ShieldPlay's functionality themselves and make sure their money that they are then passing on is, is not going to get incorrectly sure. used. We get certainty of the money's being used for the right reasons. Therefore, we're willing to pay someone for that service. Is that mutual benefit that Amir is talking about that is critical to a partnership like this? There's so many different areas that being at Cyboss as well, where for the last few years, banks partnering with fintechs has been like one of the key messages. Given that Oak North Eye, far more progressive, forward-looking bank, it really does embrace that spirit of actually two fintechs working together yeah, to build something pretty unique. Well, thank you very much for coming along and, no uh, and sharing your story. Good luck, and I, I really look forward to seeing these, uh, these new services and end-to-end -end journeys yeah. come out. So thanks. Great, thank you thanks for your time. Cheers. Cheers. Great stuff, guys. Thanks for sharing that with us. Uh, I just want to move on now to Andrew Budd from iProve. Let's hear from him now. Welcome to FinTech Insider Interviews, coming to you live from Cybos in London. My name is David Breer, and I'm joined by Andrew Budd, who is the CEO and founder of iProve. How's it going? It's a great day to be here. I mean, it is a busy day to be here. Like the, the amount of people, was it like 10,000 people at Cyboss? That's pretty impressive. It's exciting that Cyboss is in London for the first time. It is. It's good to see it back here, isn't it? I think probably putting the crown on top of it really sort of establishing itself as the as sort of the leader in this space, which is great. For those who are probably unin uninitiated, which is difficult to say at this time in the morning, apparently, tell us a little bit more about the, the business and your particular role. So iProve is the world leader in the biometric verification of uh, people using faces. Our technology is used to ensure that new and returning users are genuine, mainly for the purposes of ID verification for onboarding and also for access to personal data and payments uh, through authentication. Our key capability is that we can determine that a user is a genuinely present person yeah. and not some sort of digital spoof. And obviously this is a massive issue where we're seeing we did a show a couple of weeks ago actually with uh, the ICO and the FCA fraud of either from an identity perspective or even just for validation and confirmation from a payments perspective you know we're talking trillions of pounds a year so I mean 
nice small industry to get into? It's only going to get worse. Yeah. People's identities now become the key to their entire digital lives. Mm. And protecting those against identity theft and identity fraud is going to be one of the major challenges for the entire online economy yeah. for decades to come. And that's the, that's the precise problem that we're addressing. So that's the problem. How do you solve it? So we use face verification because it's incredibly easy to use. It's the easiest. I look at my device, it looks back at me. It couldn't be simpler, which is great from an accessibility point of view. The sensors are everywhere. Every personal device has a front-facing camera. And thanks to modern advances in deep learning, it works really, really well. But the issue is, how do I know that I'm actually looking at a real person? Yeah. We live in an era of deep fakes in which you can't believe your eyes. Yeah. A video of somebody who looks like the rightful identity owner could perfectly well be a, a deepfake spoof of the victim. Yeah. That's the core problem that lies at the heart, really, of all biometric identification. That's what iProof was set up to solve. Very good. And um, how long has the company been going now? We started trading in 2013. Yeah. So it's six years. We're, I think we've only recently graduated from being a, a startup. That graduation took place when our technology was procured by very large organizations, deployed for very large use cases, yeah. and demonstrated at scale. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? You know, the amount of, um, I mean, the amount of startups you see who I think have probably got a, a great idea from a technological perspective, but it only really matters when somebody's deploying this stuff. So, at, like you say, at the point where you're, you know, tier one, tier two major global organizations are actually implementing this as a, a way to go, it sets the standard, essentially, doesn't it? We've been lucky in timing. Every startup has to get its timing right. And for the first three or four years of our existence, we were receiving uh, substantial support from UK government grants, which enabled us to put our heads down and keep our mouths shut mm. and work on solving what is really, technically speaking, an extremely difficult problem yeah. and getting it to the level of reliability where it could actually be deployed mm. and would work in practice. Obviously, a large part of this must be the algorithm that you've built in the background of this. I mean, there's a lot of sort of buzz around AI in such a, you know, broad Terminator kind of scenario that it's going to sort of change the world. But I mean, AI being used at a, a more sort of granular level with specific use cases is really where the opportunity is, right? So we make massive use of machine learning, but machine learning is really a tool like once upon a time, the microprocessor was a tool. I prove it's built on a big idea. And the big idea is that you can't tell the genuineness of a person just by looking at them, yeah. whether it's a still or a video. You actually have to inject something into the, the image, yeah. change it in an unpredictable way and see what happens. So we've, our technology is based on something called a flash mark, which illuminates the face of the user with, from the device screen with a rapidly changing sequence of colors. Wow. We stream video of their face back to our servers and we look at how that screen illumination, which is unpredictable, interacts with their face. Wow. That tells us whether we're looking at a skin-covered, human-face-shaped object, yeah. and also it tells us whether they are genuinely present now or whether we're looking at a replay or a digital synthesis, and all without asking the user to do anything. Yeah. I mean, that genuinely is fascinating because it, it takes out so much of the potential for fraud at that level because essentially you're proving that not only do they look like them, but they are them and that it is there. So it's, I mean, that's, a, that's pretty amazing. So, I mean, you must have a queue of banks kind of knocking at the door for this right now because, you know, so many are looking at some of the fintech players out there who are, you know, maybe making it a little bit easier to get into the, focusing maybe more on customer experience and advantages of access to, to, to the services than they are necessarily the fraud mechanisms at the front door. This allows a nice balance between them, doesn't it? That's exactly right. So our whole mission was make it secure, but above all, make it usable. 
you know, I come from the mobile world. I'm not a, I'm not, I don't come from cybersecurity or anything like that. In the mobile world, you very quickly learn that when providing apps, every extra click you introduce reduces transaction rate conversion yeah. by 25%. So usability was absolutely the heart of iProof. And the fact that we've been able to make a remote onboarding, for example, incredibly easy and therefore incredibly successful yeah. has been a game changer for the banks and the governments as well that are working with us. Yeah, I mean, I spent um, six years at a, at a bank and actually the thing that I tried to sort of push to people was fraud actually is a business decision. Uh, you can make it impossible to get into your website and your app and you'll have no fraud and that's okay, but not great if you actually want customers. So to your point, in terms of other industries where actually, uh, you know, experience is, is king, and arguably, I'd say the, you know, the revolution that we've seen with fintech to banking means banks have a completely different bar now in terms of what good customer experience actually is. And this lets them potentially have you know, both things in, in one go, right? The era of being allowed to torture your customer <laughs> is over. Yeah. And our mission has been to help banks to get past that to a world of accessibility and usability, mm. whilst at the same time strengthening their defense against fraud. 10 years ago, you didn't have to worry about national secret services attacking you. Now you do. Yeah. So, I mean, London, you know, Cybos is back. We, you know, we've got uh, such a great ecosystem sort of being built out here. It really sort of feels since the, since the financial crisis, if I'm honest with you, we're in a situation where so much regulation and technology and talent has really changed what this ecosystem looks like. How do you find London as a, as a sort of a capital for this? So I must cheat because I was born and brought up in London, yes. even though I worked in many other parts of the world. London, in my judgment, the best place in the world to create a technology-driven fintech business, bar none. Yeah. And as I say, that has nothing to do with me being a, with me being a, a Londoner born and bred. <laughs> but half our company come from other parts of the world. They can see and feel it too. You know, with all the changes that are happening, you know, I'm trying to avoid so furiously to say Brexit so many times today, but with the sort of looming changes that Brexit will inevitably bring, how do you see that sort of potentially, I guess, affecting you or London more broadly? Is this us throwing away the lead or do you think we'll maintain the position? I think there are three fundamental things that give London its lead. Talent, proximity and, and customers. Sorry, and the fourth one, which is honesty. Mm. Uh, let me start with that. Uh, it makes all the difference to be working in a, in, a, in a market where you can trust the legal system, where you can trust the judges. A customer of mine asked me, why did I want to form the, our banking services contract or our fintech services contract in London? I said, because you can't bribe the judges. Really, he said? How come? <laughs> so it's a little bit like Delaware in the United States. Yeah. Good legal systems are a competitive advantage. Yeah. It's a, it's a hygiene factor for everything, isn't it? it really Enormously. Is. The fact that there is trust within the commercial system is of incredible importance. Yeah. Around that is a lack of bureaucracy. It's a very easy, correctly, and in full compliance to build a company. You can set up a company in half a day in the UK and meet all the requirements. So everything, everything works and works well here. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, we're in a, a very technological industry which requires access to incredible quantities of talent. We have numerous world-class universities in and in commuting distance around London. Uh, the, the commuting pool of London is bigger than some countries. Yeah. And once they come into work within London, all of the customs, all of the industry are one tube right away. So proximity is, is, is incredibly important as well. Mm. And the UK market and the British market centered on, on London is an incredibly receptive market for fintech innovations. Yeah. But for those reasons, 
I think London has tremendous opportunities, mm. irrespective of what occurs as a result of Brexit. Completely agree with that. As somebody who commutes in from Norwich, you know, it's amazing how far people can commute into to London to, to really sort of make a difference in terms of what, what's happening there. And it, it feels like actually when you look at all of the banks that have come here for this event, but also the, as you say, the fintechs that are being born here, it's just an amazing feat, really. Talking a little bit more about you, give us a little bit more sort of flavor of, I guess, with your background you know, you must have seen some pretty amazing changes that have sort of come through and actually had some amazing advice as well. So, I mean, what's the best career advice you've ever been given? My grandfather, from when I was little, he said, he said, Andrew, in business as well as in, in, in personal life, always tell the truth. They won't believe you anyway. <laughs> it is scary sometimes what people think is not the truth, isn't it, in these, these senses. So, um, and I think actually that, that spells to a bit of a problem with the industry from my perspective, because I mean, I think people are used to things being uh, sold to them in a, in a weird way. And also, actually, if you look at many of the banks, they're used to things taking tens of billions of pounds to kind of move the dial. And I mean, actually, technology and the commoditization of technology is changing that, right? We're, we're part of the fintech world and we're part of the cybersecurity world. Yeah. And both those suffer terribly from vaporware, from slideware, from things that people say but aren't actually able to do. That's why our strategy has been to get the feet on the ground, get the customers to the door, get the large-scale contracts running, actually demonstrate that what we claim to be able to do is actually true before taking it out to talk to banks who are quite naturally cynical. But once you can demonstrate, and I think this is true for all fintechs, once you can demonstrate the veracity of what you're claiming, that suddenly gives you a, a step forward because all the banks, both new and legacy, are desperately looking for ways to accelerate their change, but do so uh, without screwing up. Yeah. So if you can deliver them a component of that, which will help them to move faster yet securely, whatever the fintech vendor, and also it's the same is true of customers, that's got to be the shortest route to success. Agree. I mean, I was having this conversation with Nick Ogden this morning. It's uh, success is momentum. You know, actually, uh, you have that one success in terms of, uh, you know, uh, implementation at a, a, you know, a large organization it gives everybody a lot of confidence in that space, so, uh, we, which we, is fantastic. So we saw that last year, we became, IPU became the, the first ever non-US company to get a, an OTA contract out of the Department of Homeland Security, something that garnered quite a lot of, 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 uh, yeah. of, of press. And immediately that started to create momentum. It All does. sorts of other people said, well, if it's good enough for them, then it, it, there's something here. Absolutely. And momentum, momentum builds. But this is a, momentum can build but this is a big, heavy industry with a, a, a careful attention to risk appetite. Yeah. So even when momentum builds, like a tanker, momentum can build without things moving very fast. I so mean, one also needs a bit of patience well, as well. I, well, I mean, at that stage, your problem is dealing with the amount of inbound leads rather than anything else, right? So that's a nice problem to <laughs> have. I call, I, call, <laughs> I call that a rich man's problem, but you need to be patient. Sure, Because expecting that the, the finance industry will turn on a, on a button is not realistic. One of the things we've, I've learned over these last few years not just in dealing with banks, but also in my previous existence of working with mobile operators, mm. is success requires stamina, endurance, and patience. Agree, completely. So where can people find out more from the, the company? So iProve is present here today on the London and Partners stand in the innovation area. We're sharing the stand with a number of other major fintech mm-hmm. providers. We have a, a, a team here uh, ready and waiting to enthuse about iProve and what it can do for both onboarding and authentication, together with demos and explanations, ready to show all sorts of fintechs, old and new, 
um, how they can transform their businesses. Fantastic. Well, congratulations with the success. Um, if you want to find out more, um, head over to their website. There's some really, really good information about what the product's doing and the places in which they've implemented. So thanks very much for joining. Great to hear from Andrew and the iProof team. Next up, we spoke to Simon Curitan from Funding Options. Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews, coming to you live from London at Cybos. I mean, I've been here for about 10 minutes, but I've seen literally thousands of people, which is amazing. So the event is shaping up to be a pretty impressive one. But uh, I mean, this is the beginning of the first day. So let's see where we get to on the rest of that. I'm sat here with Simon Curitan. How's it going, Simon? Very good. Did Thank I get you. your surname right then? Absolutely spot on. I mean, I think there was a Norwich City football player at one point who was called Curitan. So I'm just going to go with Jamie? that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's uh, not part of the family to my knowledge, but ah. uh, we'll claim it. Disappointing. We'll claim I mean, it. so you're a commercial director over at Funding Options. Yes. Um, you guys are, I mean, hitting all sorts of highs right now in terms of press for different things. Mm. I mean, probably starting with the BCR funding. Yeah. Uh, that was a pretty big win in terms of kind of getting that, I think deservedly though, because of, like I say, you guys have been killing it. So how's that been uh, reacted to internally? Extremely positive. I mean, there's no two ways about it. For us, that was a really, really big thing. I think it's the culmination of what we've seen develop within the company for the last two years. Mm. Company's really grown. It's really, I think, kicked on to a new level. And the win hopefully justifies you know, some of the success that we've uh, we've had on behalf of SMEs. Yeah, I know the company slogan around making the small walk tall, yep. uh, that as a, you know, real metaphor for what you guys have been doing in the industry really ties together with, I think, what BCR is really looking at doing. So how are you guys going to go about spending the money? Because that's a, a great opportunity to really accelerate yep. growth. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So we've got a number of different key strategic things that we're looking at. Open banking is one of them, you won't be surprised to hear. So we have a number of pledges out there in the market, and one of those is by the end of 2022 to have another 50,000 SMEs who engage with us, engage with us via open banking. So that's one of the key elements. Secondly, we're investing very much in our infrastructure. So we've pledged to achieve an additional half a billion of lending to SMEs. Wow. Again, by the end of 2022, which is ambitious, but we think it's very, very achievable. And the money from, from the BCR fund, together with the money that we're also putting in, the matched funding, is going to really, really help us drive that build out that we need to achieve that goal. Fantastic. And I guess, uh, you know, a big part of that is structure. You know, Nick Ogden's just joined you guys. Yep. What's his official title? Chairman. Uh, he's non-executive chairman. Non-executive chairman. <laughs> I never know what a non-executive and executive is in terms of powers and controls. It probably matters from an FCA perspective, potentially, I guess. But it I does. Mean, given everything he touches turns to gold right now, then that's a pretty good sign from a recruitment perspective. Yeah, very much so. I mean, from my perspective, personally, I know for the rest of the exec team, I see that as a real coup. So, you know, the first question on, on my mind was, you know, what, why did Nick want to join funding options? But then when you drill into it, I know he's got a number of sort of key focus areas, yeah. uh, one of which would be open banking. He's very, very interested in that. Clearly, he's got a number of different things that he's looking after as an exec or as a founder and owner, but it's great to have him on board. Yeah. The show today is in London, obviously. You yep. know, we, we've seen uh, London really just explode over the last couple of years as the, the capital of fintech, you know, globally, not just from a European perspective. Yeah, I agree. Um, but I agree. we've seen 39% apparently of all of the venture capital yeah. uh, in Europe coming into London, yep. which is amazing. You know, how, how has, do you think, the importance of funding options being sort of born in, in London for you guys? I think it is really, really important. So the obvious things, access to talent, for example. I mean, I've worked all over the world, spent some time in Hong Kong, Australia for a number of years. 
there's talent everywhere. When I came back to London three, four years ago, you really understand just how deep the pool is. Mm. Um, people from all walks of life, from all over the globe, everybody just tends to congregate in London. It has a number of you know, advantages from a time zone perspective, location perspective. It's great in a way that it's offshore of mainland Europe. Yeah. And for me, it just, it means that we have something really quite unique here. Yeah. And I guess with your relationship, particularly, I guess, with the work that you've been doing with ING on, in, in Europe. Yes. I mean, how yes. has this potentially sort of impacted you, I guess, you know, particularly the focus being in a post-Brexit world, whatever that means, we probably still don't know. But I guess you guys are having to put in many of the precautions similar to other fintechs to make sure yeah. that mainland Europe is still a place that you guys can operate. Yeah, definitely. I think the, the relationship with ING has been really, really critical. It's a great Brexit hedge in a way. So that business is thriving, you know, launched just over a year ago. And we're now sort of seeing that nice hockey stick curve in terms of growth. So for us, I think the avenue that presents itself through that relationship is expansion across Europe. So we definitely have designs to move broader afield internationally. I think ING are going to be critical to that piece. Not forgetting the UK, of course. I mean, let's see what happens with, um, don't want to say the B word, but let's see what happens with that. It's a bit of a sort of a looming sort of boogeyman threat right now, yeah. isn't it? Which is yeah. which is tough. It makes it very difficult, I think, for you know we're we're so focused, I think, in in fintech and in London in terms of growth and expansion and really sort of looking for interesting opportunities. But yeah. I mean, this is the the sort of weird background beat for yeah, probably yeah, the last four years. What is it? Three and a half years since the yes. the, the vote sort of took place. Yeah, so, I think so, yeah. um, I mean, what impact do you think that has had on you from a planning perspective? Is it sort of hindered anything or is it more of a just something we have to deal with? It's definitely had a significant impact in my opinion. So I think for SMEs themselves, that uncertainty, it can't do anything positive. Yeah. So from that perspective, it's really frustrating. I've had, you know, numbers of people who run their own businesses, friends, people, you know, I've met through the market. They're deeply, deeply impacted by the indecision. From their perspective, you know, they're just not able to plan Mm. or they can't succeed in obtaining the next contract because of this uncertainty. We see it day to day in the decision making of SMEs. So, you know, do they take funding now, for example, or do they wait and see what happens? And in a couple of months, they start again. From our perspective, right now, there is a degree of certainty to an extent that they can borrow. Who knows what will happen at the end of October? Yeah. We will wait and see on that one. I guess from a, uh, the show more broadly, you know, there's this, obviously there's going to be a lot of Brexit discussions, but we're seeing yeah. a, an international audience, you know, just mm-hmm. in the queue kind of to get my pass. I think I saw pretty much every nationality that there is. So, I mean, what subject matters are you looking at uh, really sort of seeing people dig into t- today? I think, well, I'm hopeful that, that this Cybos event is going to see the rise and rise of the fintech and the recognition of the fintech industry here in the UK. As you were mentioning earlier on, the amount of investment we're receiving is really, really significant. I think arguably, you know, we're there or thereabouts with Silicon Valley, maybe second, who knows. But for me, it's really important that we start to establish, I guess, the, you know, the prominence of fintechs within the UK and within Europe. Yeah. Uh, and I'm hopeful that that will start to grow from Cybos today. Yeah. I think it was announced actually today, I think London has just overtaken New York as the leader in fintech investment, essentially. I think yep. in tech more broadly, Silicon Valley's probably still got a, a bit of a, a way to go for us to kind of uh, overcome those guys. But I mean, momentum sort of breeds success in this space, doesn't it? You know, we've seen 
I remember, what was it, three or four years ago, people were like, well, Europe just doesn't have that unicorn valuation. You know, they don't have the big companies. And it seems like every couple of days right now, people are kind of going multiple billions, you know? So, I mean, Stripe, are, what, 23 billion? I think there was 23 billion over in the US right now. Yeah, okay. But Oak North yep. and Monzo and Starling and these guys, you've got to be chasing that unicorn soon, right? <laughs> We will see. We will see. Never say never. But yes, it's, uh, it's exciting times. Uh, if not for those of us who just like to download the latest app and play with uh, the newest technology, it's quite cool. Yeah. To finish up maybe a little bit more about you. So, sure, sure. I mean, in terms of there's going to be a lot of people who haven't been able to make it to the conference that are looking for career advice. Mm. What was the thing that, I guess, you know, let's say five, ten years ago, mm. looking back now, that you think would have really sort of helped you accelerate, I think, in terms of the, the great position that you're in now? I think for me, my background is, has, well, principally it was in banking. So I started out in investment banking 15 or so years, then moved more into the commercial banking space and then eventually into, you know, innovation and fintech. For me, key advice would be for people to get themselves out of their comfort zone. It's really easy to settle into that rhythm, you know, the day-to-day. For me, I, I probably spent maybe too much time in banking, the traditional banking. I, I wish I'd made the move a little bit earlier. But for me, I've never been one to sit on my, you know, rest on my laurels, sit on my hands. Uh, and I took it, you know, upon myself to find that new role in fintech, yeah. which actually was in Australia at CBA, oh. uh, where I first had my foray into that. And that was really, really rewarding. So for me, it would be advising people to just just explore enjoy themselves and get out of that comfort zone yeah i completely relate to that you know having spent six years at a bank i think you've got to really understand the industry that you're facing into to understand actually where you can help um there's so many people who are preoccupied with you know starting a startup or that kind of entrepreneurial life but i mean the reality is you need to work in an industry to understand it to know how you can help basically yeah agreed i mean over that period of time you must have had some pretty good career advice what's the best piece of advice that you've uh, you've been given be ambitious never say never cliche terms but they really can't you know they, they, they stand for a lot for me i think it's absolutely important to uh you know, to maintain that focus and, and keep yourself alive, you know, keep, keep it exciting. Yeah. I mean, with Nick involved, that's not going to stop anytime soon for sure. So, uh, absolutely. So absolutely. what's the, what's the future of funding options then? Uh, you know, European stuff, you know, the partnership with ING, yep. increasing sort of foothold here. Mm-hmm. Where do you guys see yourself going? Principally, I would say we are going to become far more capable from a technology perspective. So I would argue that up until this point, we've been more of a people-led business. And I think what we're going through now is that sort of rebalancing whereby we need that infrastructure behind us, the the piece that makes us a fintech, Mm. to really power that growth going forward. So we're very, very focused on that. As I said, the BCR funds uh, are going to go certainly some way to helping us do that and achieve our goals on behalf of SMEs. So over the next few years, I think you'll see us establish that fintech base, that technology base, which will enable us to really power on. So the expansion in Europe, potentially further beyond, depending upon, you know, the opportunities in those markets. I don't have any limits set, but as you say, working with people like Nick, the rest of the board, and we've got a very experienced executive team now that we've recently brought on board. For me, it's exciting times. Fantastic. Well, I mean, success gives you the opportunity, you know, optionality is, is brought by that, isn't it? So, uh, but fantastic for, and thank you very much for joining us today. Um, where it. can people learn a little bit more about you and Funding Options? www.fundingoptions.com. You can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, come to the site, give us a, give us a try. 
Very good. Uh, as for me, you know where to find me. You can find me over on Twitter at David Breer. Uh, thanks for joining us right now. If you liked this chat, then head over to iTunes, leave us a review. We do love reading those reviews. Like, genuinely, I do love reading those reviews. Thanks very much, guys. See you later. Thanks. Great to hear from Simon, and congrats again to Funding Options on the Remedies Fund win. Next up, we have Jason talking to Todd Latham from Currency Cloud, another Remedies winner. Let's hear from them now. Welcome to FinTech Insider Interviews, live from Cybos 2019 in London. I'm Jason Bates. It's my pleasure to be joined by Todd Latham, CMO and Head of Product at Currency Cloud. Hey, Todd. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. How are you doing? Yeah, really good, thank you. How First are you? Cybos, so it's exciting. Well, I was going to say, how are you finding Cybos this year? It's huge, just massive, right? I'm like, it's 11,000 people out here. I know, it's crazy. I think the thing that stuck out for me are lots of Chinese banks, Indian banks, like banks from different parts of the world that I don't think I'd probably seen in, uh, in previous things. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and, you know, obviously we go mainly to the fintech conferences. The other yeah. thing is, it's just very banky, right? Lots it of suits and it's much more... It feels a little bit more old school than, say, Money 2020. So yeah, um... I, I just didn't get the, men, the memo. <laughs> so to start off with, congratulations on the funding and Paul C for the Remedies Fund. Thank funds. you. Can you tell us a little bit about that and the process and how it all kind of worked out? Yeah, so um, we applied, we won. That, that much is kind of, <laughs> you know, that was the process. But really, I think a few things that are really important from it. So first of all, we won because we want to help SMEs in general, in this case specifically UK SMEs, get better access to international payments. And, you know, we think for too long they've kind of been left out in the cold. If you're a consumer, then you're really well looked after. You know, you've got a whole host of startups who are challenging the incumbents and you can send money around the world very easily. If you're a corporate customer, you're well looked after. You can go to any of the big banks and they'll be clamoring for your business. If you're in the middle... You've got nothing, right? You really don't know where to go. You're still going into your branch to make a cross-border payment. You're still having an archaic experience around cross-border. And they deserve better, and we think they deserve better. So what we're using the BCR grant to do is basically accelerate what we're building anyway. So there's nothing new in there, but we'll get there faster. And a couple of things in particular. So clearly, FX and payments is, is course what we do. But increasingly, we're seeing demand for collections or receivables around the world. So UK businesses wanting to be able to invoice their customers in the US in US dollars, get paid like a local without having to say to your customer, oh, no, no, sorry, I only bank in pounds, so can you send me pounds to me, please, and, sure. you know, make a cross-border payment and put all of the stress onto the customer. So we're doing that. We're also integrating into the massive accounting platforms to make the customer journey much easier, things like request to pay, just some really exciting bells and whistles to what we do today already. For me, that's one of the interesting things about payments at the moment. It's going beyond just the transaction into yeah. the context and into how this fits into commercial management or invoicing customers or Shopify or whatever. You know, is, right. is that something you're seeing as well? So we access the SMEs via our channel, right? We, we don't sell to SMEs. We only ever sell to financial institutions. Right. And we've got some fabulous customers who they do a niche really well. And, and the ones I really like are the people who, uh, I can't talk about the name yet, but we're doing a really exciting project with a, an aviation marketplace. Uh-huh. And, you know, if you need a private jet, you need to get the money. To, and there's a, whole, there's a whole system, an ecosystem sure. here that needs to be serviced. And they know that ecosystem really well. And so when you see those niche applications of what we do, that's when it becomes really powerful. And they can take a bit from here and a bit from there and really leverage the API marketplace feature of what we do and, uh-huh. and, and other people like us in this space to build really compelling propositions for their customers. Because you guys have been around for a while. Actually, there's a lot of 
consumer-facing propositions people would know and love and really recognise the brands of that you've been behind, I guess, in the background providing infrastructure for for a long time. Yeah, we're actually talking a lot about our partnership with Starling uh, mm. this week because you know we use Starling for UK infrastructure. They use us for global infrastructure. It's a real win-win for our customers. But you know whether it's them or Revolut or Asimo, you know, all sorts of British-based consumer brands use our platform. Mm. So the, the chances are, as a UK consumer, you've used our platform to send money overseas. So given you've been around for a while, like not you personally, but the company. Well, thank you. I've, <laughs> I've been with the company for a while, so probably tight. But yeah. What, what's changed over the last few years? At Heartland is digital native companies, you know, the challenger banks, the challenger brands sure. who all build digital versus propositions. And actually the great thing about being at Cybos and what you really see is now the digital transformers coming to the space. The big guys who for a long time, I think, kind of rested on the laurels and were like, look, they're tiny. They're sure. never going to take market share from us. And now suddenly they're thinking, shit, they're really taking market share. Uh-huh. I hope I can swear on this, by the way, because I just did. Oh, yeah, I think, um, I think that's fine. The, the ship sailed. So, but, you know, they're saying, shit, this is actually becoming real and we need to respond. Yeah. And I think they've been dabbling it for a while. Now they're starting to respond in a more serious way. And so what we're really starting to see at a show like this is those banks who get it, who understand how to make this work, and they've learned a lot of lessons. They're probably doing their second or third iteration of this, and it's done to feel successful. So we did a partnership with Visa earlier on this year, not a bank, but servicing the banks. And really, you know, what we're helping issuing banks to do now is make the traveler experience much more compelling. So, you know, when I spend on my card in France, or if I'm a French customer spending my card in the UK, by the way, it's not a UK-based proposition, how do I make that so that I can either prepay a wallet, I can, you know, load up my euros before I go away, Revolut style, and sure. uh, but as a big bank customer with all the security you get as a big bank customer, or even when I'm in the French cafe spending my money on euros, how do I get that real-time notification on my card that you'd again get with the neo banks today? So we suddenly see um, the kind of digital transforming banks, huge banks coming much more similar to their digital native counterparts. Uh-huh. And so, do you help them with those propositions as well? Because I guess it's a chicken and egg. Because you can say, well, we've got these amazing APIs, the amazing things. Do banks come up with the stuff or do you bring them, you know, ideas bit, as you want? A bit of both. I think there's some co-creation in there. Is there is an, you know, I think they take our expertise. Clearly, they've got massive expertise as well. Sure. You know, I think it's easy to deride the kind of big incumbents as slow-moving beasts. But they've got their market position because they're, they're good at what they do. They've got a lot of trust. And for the most part, they execute well. It just takes them a little bit longer. So I think you've got to have the two coming together um, to get a really effective proposition out there. I think from our experience, banks are amazing on their product. But when it comes to actually those intelligent services, the amazing things that connect with the context of customers' lives, they tend not to think in that way uh, as a challenger bank or a challenger brand would. I guess, you know, Currency Cloud is providing banks and fintechs with cross-border payments. And we're seeing more customer focus products. What do you think incumbents can learn from fintechs or vice versa? Because I guess you have clients on both sides. Yeah, it looks really interesting. So the the most successful fintechs who are getting really big are becoming quite, I'd say, sophisticated. They want real SLAs, they want service levels that are really strict. They've got Mm. best-in-class monitoring systems, all the things that the banks, the larger incumbents will say, it's our bread and butter, it's why we're so secure and safe. You're seeing the challenger segment now really embracing that and, and becoming more bank-like, frankly. That's what I think the fintechs are learning from the banks, actually. And I think what you're seeing from the banks is a greater respect for things like Agile and how Agile can really get best-in-class products to market more quickly, but not only more quickly, better, because they're tested in the real-world context and they're, sure. they're, they're people live and breathe the products and they don't come out like in waterfall iterations every three years. 
But I think it's still really hard for big organizations to square off waterfall with agile. Especially if you're servicing businesses, you need to give deadlines. You've got contractual commitments and you know that sure. there's that that inflection point is still really hard to get right. And so how do you work internally, given that you work with banks that have got these big waterfall plans and fintechs that want to talk to you about the backlog and what we're going to be building in the next sprint? So look, we're still totally agile, but, you know, increasingly you have to blur the lines and you have to infuse the agile thing of, yeah, but we committed to do this and we're going to make sure it happens and we're going to hit it. And it's going to be the right quality, by the way. So, you know. Short engineers love you for that. They do, exactly. <laughs> uh, but look, you know, that, that's the reality. I think agile at scale becomes really hard. You know, end-to-end ownership of services, for example, becomes really tested when you're growing a business and actually sure. you've got one customer experience, but you're going to have 10, 15, 20 engineers working on that same customer experience. Sure. And, you know, we started bringing things like tribes and how do you bring those teams really working together? So sure. you retain agile but at the same time, you're scaling it in a way that is meaningful and, and, and makes sense for the customer. So are you organised in small teams that sort of develop and deliver and operate these APIs and models? Yeah, so, so we've always had kind of small end-to-end squads with ownership of services, but as they grow, you've only got one customer. You can't have 25 people delivering their own version of the product sure. to that one customer. So now what we're doing is bringing the squads together into tribes, and that's how we're thinking about Agile at scale. Interesting. So what are the biggest challenges with new and evolving technologies when it comes to international money transfer? Compliance remains a big thing. So at the point where you could go into the bank and you could make a transfer and you had to look the seller in the eye and your bank manager knew you, all of those sorts of things, great. But in digital age, you can't do that. So how do you make sure your compliance systems operate at scale in a world where fraud, cyber, all that stuff is increasing? You know, we make massive investments in those systems. I think like every business out there, one of your biggest nightmares is what happens if it all goes wrong and you just sure. got to make sure you're constantly guarding against that. There's nothing new here. We've been talking about these issues for a while. You just got to be constantly on your guard about how you manage them and, and, and constantly on the front foot because it's constantly evolving. And what about the underlying infrastructure? I mean, a few years ago, Cybos and everywhere else was talking about blockchain and Ripple and different types of money transfer and yeah. different currencies. There was definitely a hype cycle. I've got to think that some of that must be coming back around. Is it still the traditional money transfer mechanisms you see? Or? Do you know what? No. So I think blockchain is overhyped. I've always thought that. I keep on looking at it just in case I'm wrong. <laughs> but, but so far, it feels like it's overhyped and it's solving a problem that doesn't really exist, right? Yeah. The, the reality is the cost of payment isn't the transaction costs. The cost for payment is all the compliance, all the stuff that goes around it, and a great big water profit. It's a pricing issue. It's not really a technology issue. Right. I think what is interesting, so GPI, actually Swift GPI is a really interesting initiative. I was skeptical at first, but I, I've been converted. The visibility and the transparency it brings to cross-border payments is going to be really powerful. And I think that combined with the need for more data to stifle things like cross-border money laundering, all that sort of stuff, is going to make some of the traditional challenger models like ACH just outdated. The reality is most OCH networks don't carry enough data to deal with the fraud issues, Mm. and Swift does. Mm. And I think Swift plus GPI, plus the issues you get from money laundering compliance, travel rule, those sorts of things, Mm. is going to start changing the nature of cross-border payments. And I think you're going to see more going through correspondent banking than than you used to, Mm. uh, which is kind of counterintuitive. So that's yeah, I find it I find it interesting there because we uh, were talking to the I think it was the VP of Alipay who again was talking about context and the fact that this these naked transactions of this currency and this amount to this account number is like what can you do with that in the new right. world compared to all of the metadata that can be sent both from a security and fraud perspective but also a loyalty or you know yeah. all, all kinds of other services yes. that can be layered on top of things and I guess we don't have 
that baked in right at the bottom, apart from new providers that are coming along saying, actually, we need to enrich this data yeah. in order to protect and, and serve customers better. How that conflicts with privacy regulation, you know, there's, it's a complex, hairy yeah. world there. Yeah, sure. and how are you finding the whole sort of PSD2 and open banking and API side on one hand, and then GDPR and privacy and, you know, it seems like, is there a tension there? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we need to collect what we collect for compliance issues, right? Yeah. We need to make sure that there aren't bad guys sending money across our platform. And actually, we've got massive advantages there because we service all these guys. We can see if somebody's bad is putting money here and here and here and here. Sure. And we'll stop it again and again and again. And, and, you know, we might see the same transactions being structured five times. Sure. And we've got analytics that starts to prevent those sorts sure. of things. So, so actually, we can use it really powerfully in a way that I don't think is... Um, against privacy regulation or anything like that. We're servicing businesses, we're servicing other customers. I think we're a layer removed from some of those concerns. But certainly I see our customers wrestling with some of those issues. So London's often seen as like the fintech hub. We talk about the fact that we've got the regulators, the banks, the fintechs, the tech talent down Old Street, all within a very small area. But obviously we've got Brexit and a whole host of other things sort of coming along. As an international money transfer business you must be on the sharp end of dealing with these kinds of things yeah brexit's fun uh, <laughs> so so well, i can tell you what we see so we, we've got over 400 customers on our books now and, and most of them are fintech companies sure and they used to really come out of the uk and increasingly they're not so the the ones in the uk are scaling up and i think they've got escape velocity the ones you all know and love they're there and they'll be there forever sure. they'll be fine but what we miss in the uk with brexit coming along is the next wave of fintech companies and i think whether or not London retains that strength is going to be, it's a concern for me. I don't see it myself. Sure. I think that said, it's hard elsewhere. The US, you've got to get regulated in 50 states. I know from personal bitter experience how many fingerprints you've got to do to make that happen, right? It's a, <laughs> it's a painful process. It's a massive expense. So sure. the US has a kind of a different kind of a fintech scene, but sure. tends to be larger, more established scale-ups. I think Asia's really interesting. Mm. Um, you know, the challenge of banks in Australia, for example, whether you call that Asia or not, so I don't know. But, you know, the Asia-Pacific region, the Australian Challenge Bank is really interesting. Sure. Uh, no, a good friend of mine uh, founded Zinja, who I know very there well. There we go. You know, we're working with a lot of the Challenge Banks in Australia. I can't necessarily name sure. them all at the moment, but Japan is also really interesting. Mm. You know, the, the regulator in Japan is starting to kind of deregulate and to free up, and it's you know, really monopolised by three huge banks. I think the next wave of fintech is going to come out of the Asia-Pacific region. Yeah, I guess it's interesting because on one hand, you've got the Alipays, the WeChats, the Tencents, yeah. you know. And on the other hand, you've got Singapore, Hong Kong, giving new banking licenses out. There seems to be a bit of a contagion around that. Australia as well. So you've got the really big tech and the small banking. I know Currency Cloud, I guess, from the London office. Like, how much are you doing out there? And and how well does your, I guess, your product, your service translate into those kinds of markets? Translates really well. So we actually, we're not out there at all. And yet we have a lot of customers out there. So um, of our new business coming in, um, a decent whack is coming in from the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, And and that's growing faster for us now than Europe is certainly. Uh And we're not even there yet. So I think over time as we develop the proposition out, there's a lot of opportunity. Say Asia as a region is kind of, uh, you know, it's enormous clearly and it's very different in different countries. So I think we've got some work to really figure out exactly where we play and how we can help people out there. We've also seen, I guess, at 11FS, a lot of interest come out of the Middle East recently. Yeah. You know, it seems like a lot of those uh, sort of Gulf states both have a lot of wealth, but are looking at and have a lot of banks that are moving along. Is, yes. is, do you do any work out there? So one of our bigger customers is Travelex, for example, sure. which is owned by UA Exchange. So we've got a lot of customers out there. And actually, when you look at the currencies we exchange, actually, 
we do a lot of the Saudi Real, yeah. the uh, Qatari Real, like surprising volumes of flow goes to yeah, those yeah. currencies. So yeah, we see a lot of that sort of business. So what do you think are the most important topics being discussed at Cybox this year? Have you managed to get to see any of the uh, talks? I've barely got anywhere so far. <laughs> but, you know, I think what we're, what we're definitely seeing is kind of what I mentioned earlier is the big banks are really waking up and smelling the coffee when it comes to how much market share fintechs are starting to take. And they know they need to move to compete. And so, you know, a lot of them are coming with very similar things of like, you know, it's really hard. We've got this big legacy stuff. And by the way, it's not even technology. It's like, I've got a P&L here and a P&L over here. Yeah. And, you know, we've all got different competing interests and I can't get stuff done because of the alignment yeah. issues. And, you know, it goes way beyond the traditional, it's a legacy technology issue. It's much deeper than that. But I think that's what you suddenly see is they're figuring it out. They're getting better. Also, you suddenly see um, the big infrastructure players taking a much bigger role. So mm. clearly Swift for GPI is doing a lot of really interesting innovation. But uh, Visa are here in a big way. Mm. Mastercard are here in a big way. So I think the traditional network companies mm. are starting to play a really big role in what the future of payments is going to look like. It's interesting looking at that stack, I guess. Yeah. Because you know, we've got you know Currency Cloud here and Form 3 here. And, yeah. You know, a, a variety of people playing at that level. AWS are here. And then you've got the Mastercard, the Visas, the yeah. Alipays. You know, there's a variety of, of players now that are almost the accepted behind the hood stack yeah, I think that's um, right. of a challenger proposition right at the top is yes. built on all of these players underneath. Do, yeah. do you see more platformification or do you think there'll be some consolidation you know, vertically or horizontally? I think the thing about payments is there are so many use cases. The, the idea that everything consolidates into two or three companies like does with, I don't know, Search, for example, sure. I just don't think happens. There are too many different ways of using platforms. So clearly... Visa and Mastercard in particular are massively acquisitive, so there's going to be some consolidation there. But I think you're still going to see a plethora of other people doing some really interesting things around the edges, and, and some of them will get really big. Interesting. So how did you get into all of this? Like, you didn't start your career at Currency Cloud, I guess. Like, tell me about your background. Oh, when I was 12 years old, I just dreamt <laughs> of being in fintech. And, uh, no, I actually came from Amex and before that Microsoft, so kind of a bit of oh, a, wow. a tech background, a bit of a fin background. And, so what do you wish you'd have known then that you... Uh, you know, no now, apart from this weird company is going to come along called Google that you should really put all your money into. <laughs> Work for a startup sooner. It's okay. the most fun you can ever have in your life. You know, it moves at the speed of light, but it's so much fun. It's really why, interesting. Why is that? What is it about working in a startup you think is so, uh, so amazing? You can just get stuff done. You know, you can see an opportunity. You can get a group of people together. You can ex- execute it really quickly. Uh-huh. There's always too much, like, actually, it's too much opportunity. It's like, yeah. where do you stop so that you don't get overwhelmed by it all is the issue. Yeah, one of my um, favorite uh, startup quotes from a VC in the US is, startups don't starve, they drown. I, yeah, it's true. <laughs> and and I think there's something it. to that. Yeah, there people, really is. People have this feeling that you'll get in. It's like, oh, there won't be enough. But there's just so much you can possibly do. Yeah, yeah. So, and on that, how does Currency Cloud not drown? Like, what are you focusing on? What's the, you know, the future of, uh, of that look like? So, I want to do one thing, and I want to be the best in the world at doing it, which is receiving money across borders, converting to different currencies and sending it. I guess it's three things, but, <laughs> but it's the three parts of one thing. Okay. Uh, if you bear with me. But, you know, kind of, that's what we want to do really well. You know, we're not distracted by anything else, and I think we're executing on that vision. So, the use case is a plethora, but that one bit, we're the place to come for it. Perfect. Well, Todd, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jason. (laughs) 
At 11FS, we exist to change the fabric of financial services and the perception of the industry as a whole. And we're excited to officially bring you a first glimpse of our most ambitious media project to date. We've made a feature-length documentary. For years, the story of the financial crisis has been told in isolation. The bad things that happened during it, the global fallout from it, and the effect on consumers as a result. So we wanted to tell the untold story, how UK financial services evolved out of the crisis, created the perfect ecosystem, and grew into a thriving global fintech capital that we have today. We conducted over 20 interviews from the leaders in the UK's biggest banks, regulators, fintechs, all sharing first-hand experience of the changes that propelled the UK to its position as the global financial services hub. The trailer is available to watch now on 11years.film. Head over to the website, watch it, and let us know what your thoughts are on Twitter. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation, and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation, and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. And finally, Jason spoke to Simon Winchester from Jumio. Over to you guys. Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews, live from Cybos 2019 in London. I'm Jason Bates, and today I'm joined by Simon Winchester, VP of Sales EMEA at Jumio. Hey, Simon. Hi, Jason. How are you doing? Pretty good. How are you doing? Very, very well. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely my pleasure. I know you're losing your voice. I am. I'm I feeling am. cold. Suddenly we've got to that point in a yep, conference where yep. they turn the air con up. Indeed. It's have nearly had, October. It is. It is. Have you had a busy day? It has been a busy day, but it's been a very good day. So first of, I think, three or four. But yeah, it's been good. It's been good. <laughs> that voice is totally gone by the end of yeah, the year. Yeah, I apologise if it's difficult to understand what I'm saying. So for people who've been hiding under a rock, can you tell us about Jumio? So Jumio are a trusted identity as a service. And that means that we are an AI and ML tech-driven platform who intelligently verify the real-world identity of digital consumers. And what does that mean in plain English or human speak? Well, if you've ever onboarded yourself with a bank remotely, whether that be a traditional bank like HSBC or a digital challenger like Monzo, if you've ever remitted money internationally outside financial services, if you've ever rented accommodation on a flat sharing website or indeed rented a car, a bike, a scooter, on a ride-sharing app. Sure. Well, in all of those scenarios, the business that you're interacting with needs to know who is on the other end of that transaction. And it's not who are they saying they are, but who are they really? And that's where Jumio come in. We work with businesses to establish trust and safety for online digital transactions. So I guess, you know, we don't have an online digital identity. We're in this really weird sort of intermediate world where we've been doing a lot of things offline. I had to use my passport to get into this conference today. Indeed, yeah. Or you take your copy of your utility bill down yeah. to your bank. Correct. And at the same time, we've got all of these new providers that are moving money around that yeah. have to follow exactly the same rules and regulations yeah. as, as all of the other banks and financial services providers. And the question is, how do you do that? I mean, how did Jumio start off? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And, you know, at our core, Jumio's functionality is in verifying government-issued IDs. So that very passport that you mentioned, or a driving license, or a national ID card, amongst many, many others. Uh-huh. And we take that, and then the second major function is the facial biometrics. Okay. So determining whether it really was Jason who was submitting their ID at that point in time when trying to send funds from the UK to Singapore or opening a bank account. So those are core aspects of the Jumio solution. And and over time, we've evolved those, we've added new products. So you mentioned utility bills. We have a product that enables us to extract data from those utility bills, do basic form of of verification. It's very difficult to verify a Thames water utility bill because it's usually just a piece of paper that could be easily manipulated, but we can capture those images, we can extract that data, and we can do some basic verification. And then we've evolved into AML, so there's PEPs and sanctions, things like that. But one of the the key ways that we've evolved over time is in the identity verification aspect. Now, that could be confusing, but what I mean by that is the the facial biometric piece, the liveness detection aspect. So... In Gartner terms, we are now, as a company, Jumio are operating in the original onboarding aspect, so that first iteration or interaction with the bank, which is identity proofing, and then also in the continuous reauthentication of that customer throughout the life cycle of their interaction with that business. Okay. And that is called corroboration. So Gartner call this quite sexy, I don't think so, but identity <laughs> proofing and corroboration. And they say that we are one of the first in the market, the digital identity verification space, to offer that bridge between original onboarding and ongoing authentication. And that's kind of how we've evolved over time. This sounds like an area that's uh, not only high risk, that financial services have their licenses and massive, yeah. you know, multi-billion dollar fines you know, with potential. How can financial services companies outsource this to a certain extent and trust that the companies that they're dealing with, who are, I guess, relatively new compared to some of the the big players on the scene, you know, will really, really protect them? It's a very good question. And when I joined Jumio back in 2014, which seems like a lifetime ago, the space was very bleeding edge. So we were spending our time educating financial institutions on why they would use Jumio for digital identity Mm. verification rather than why they should use Jumio over competitor one or two. And so it was quite an interesting time, but over the last five years or so, clearly we have evolved into more mainstream. Again, when you have people like Gartner commenting on on our our practice, it's a good sign. I think it was McKinsey last year who said they expect digital identity verification to be a $20 billion market in the next year or two. So we are very much widely accepted on a global scale. And as businesses move more into digital, their focus needs to be on how they prove that they are working with the true owner of a particular ID or the, mm. the, the true person who wants to carry out a particular transaction. So it's an interesting market. And, and how do they rely on people like us? Well, I think the reality is you need to remember what the old practice was. That might be going into a bank branch yeah. and you go to a bank clerk and they might take a look at your ID, very limited to no training. And you say, yeah, that sure. kind of looks real. Who, who knows what a Venezuelan passport looks like? 100%. So, you know, you're benchmarking it against not, you know, the silver bullet, 100% accurate. But really, sure. what were we dealing with in the past? And what we were dealing with is not particularly good. So you have that. And then you also have companies, businesses that have been trying to keep it internally. So a bank or a payment system or, you know, a remittance company, you sure. name it might have been 
working themselves to verify IDs online. And as they grow, it either becomes totally impractical that they're not trying to be a, a Jumio, a digital sure. identity verification business. Sure. They're trying to be HSBC sure. or, or Monzo. Sure. Uh, and that's what they should focus on. So they get to the point where maybe their accuracy levels or their capacity is not good enough or high enough as expected. They don't have the resource to deal with it anymore because they've grown and they need to rely on a company like Jumio who, you know, best in breed at doing so, and that is our core product. It's interesting. I mean, I know of Jumio from back in my Monzo days, and it's interesting to see the stack of new providers evolve together, whether it's ClearBank at some level or AWS at some level or Currency Cloud or Jumio, or you see this sort of match of people who are specialising very much in one thing coming together with, you know, a variety of providers. Let's use Monzo as an example. Like, talk us through how does that kind of thing evolve? How do those kinds of projects work? In terms of our partnership with hmm. Monzo? Sure. Um, sure, yeah. I just quickly, I think that, to your point, you also do have the inverse, which are some companies that try and do, you know, jack-of-all-trades and, and that cover absolutely everything, whether right. that be, you know, regtechs or the fintech. Sure. And, and I think there's positive and negatives, I guess. That's not what we're here to debate now. But, sure. you know, we always believe that we should be the expert, the master of something yep. rather than, you know, good at everything. So very different schools of thought for that. But Exactly, because in some ways we've seen a few outages of particular providers yeah. that have impacted four challenger banks at a time. Correct. So there is always that question of concentration of risk around a supplier <clears throat> stack that I think does get interesting, you know, as we're looking at this devolved infrastructure world. Yeah, but then again, the flip side of that, the argument would be, you know, people rely on Salesforce or or AWS, and if that goes down, you hope that they have inherent BCP to cover it. So we could go on and on and on. But um, going back to your original question about Monzo, you know, they're a great partner of ours. We've been working with them for a number of years now. You know, we're embedded into their customer onboarding process. They famously said that they want a customer to to go into Starbucks and when they join the back of the queue, start going through the Monzo application, obviously, which incorporates Jumio. And by the time they get to the desk front counter and say, I want a coffee, they should have their account open. And, and you know, it's great that we are able to help facilitate that sort of customer workflow. And, And one of the ways that we've done that, what we believe is a key differentiator between us and other suppliers in the market and that's via a definitive decision when it comes to verification. So with Jumio, we say, as I think I mentioned, yes, it's Simon, or no, it's not Simon. There's no yes, no, maybe. For us, that maybe space is a gray area that a customer like Monzo doesn't want to have to deal with. They're outsourcing to a solution provider like Jumio, and they hope that they can help. So the fact that we provide a definitive response to Monzo means that when you're at the back of the queue, you really can be approved by the time you get to the front, not sent down an additional workflow and, and we'll come back to you in 24 hours, 48 hours, you know, 10 minutes, however long it takes. So, But I guess that brings up a question of how the liability model works. <coughs> that if you say, yes, that is Simon, and it turns out not to be Simon, like, how does that flow down? Whose fault is it? How does it, what happens? Oh, it's never our fault. So. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, it's a difficult question, actually. Uh, and it comes back to what I said in terms of looking at what we had in the past, which is an untrained bank clerk looking sure. at a Venezuelan passport, not yeah. knowing what's up, what's down. Yeah. Uh, and so I think 
everybody in the market, whether it be Jumia or another competitor or any other solution provider, pretty much accepts that there is no silver bullet. Sure. If we wanted to be right 100% of the time, then we could, but sure. it would be a thousand pounds per transaction <laughs> and it will take 24 hours. Private investigators hours. visiting your exactly, house. Exactly, exactly. And, sure. and, it, and it's not a good workflow, uh, customer experience. And I think what you, you know, what we like to remember and what everybody talks about is the fact that 99% of the time it is just Jason and Simon sure. who want to get on with their day, yeah. you know, Joe Public, and it's, they're the good guys and girls, you know. It's, sure. it's, it's, it's more about customer conversion to the good yeah. while interwoving an acceptable level of fraud protection. Sure. And we think I, we've got the both best. Uh, I, I guess I was just interested in that yes or no decision, because to some extent, internally, there must be some scoring that matching wise, whether it's uh, online databases or certainty that your ML model like comes out. Yeah. with. But to convert that to a yes or no is quite yeah. a... Um, you know, it's yeah. quite a punchy move. <laughs> well, we stand by it. Yeah. Uh, and that's why we believe we have the highest level of accuracy in the market. And that's why we believe we have, you know, the best product out there. And, you know, so be it. It's cool. proven and tested. The way that we try and support that, not only with customers like Monzo and HSBC, sure. but is in the, the hybrid approach that we have to verification. Okay. So you mentioned AI and ML. Sure. Uh, and yeah, that is a key, key focus for us. We opened up a, an AI lab in Montreal last year, and obviously yep. it's entirely dedicated to the innovation of technology and our algorithms. Yeah. The interesting part of that is that algorithms can only learn from the data that they are given. Sure. And luckily for us at Jumio, we've just recently hit our 200 millionth ID verification milestone. So we have one of the world's largest databases to train our own algorithms on. Okay. In, in positive and neg negative Exactly, cases, exactly. And then if you take that, and I mentioned the hybrid approach, the other side of that is a human verification expert. And what we do is we use something that we like to call augmented intelligence. So sure. bridging the gap, it's not just a light switch. Yes, it's automated or no, it's all human. It's a more fluid approach where, as an example, we might see 50,000 UK driving licenses a day. Right. The data you know, is excellent for the algorithms and they can do most of the, yeah. the legwork and might just have a little human touch for one particular aspect. Sure. The inverse of that is a Colombian national ID card that we only right. see once or, or, or 2,000 times a day. And for that, we flip more into the human element while taking some of the workload away, sure. putting that through the automation, and that's what allows us to keep accuracy levels high and allows us to kind of stand by what we say in terms of yes, no, rather than yes, no, maybe. Makes a lot of sense around that approach. I guess it leads with the most common cases for things happening very fast. But in the worst cases, things slowing down in terms of that being able to apply for a debit card before I get to Starbucks yeah. counter with a Colombian ID yeah. card is going yeah. to be probably a little more difficult. Well, you say that, and yes, it is based on what I've just said. But the reality is that all of that process, whether it's entirely automated, entirely human, or X percent of either one, right. it's all happening in our contracted SLAs. And okay. over 60% of our transactions are happening in less than 60 seconds, Interesting. regardless of whether it's Colombian, you know, mm -hmm. Botswana, and from Singapore or UK. Sure. And that is 24-7, 365. So, we're very aware that, again, it comes back to the customer journey. Mm. And we need to make sure that by the time you pay for that Starbucks, you've got your account open. So I guess in the UK, there's a lot of data, there are a lot of online databases, a lot of digital sources to pull data from. Yeah. 
It's not the same for the parts of the world. No. I assume as like an international business, there are other regions. And indeed, you know, you look at Germany where yeah. for a lot of account opening, there has to be a, a face-to-face piece to it as well. Correct. Like what are the difficult, interesting regions? Like where, where are you in business at the moment? So we're truly global. And what we mean by that is, yes, we really are global. We're not just verifying passports around the world, which is the easier yeah. ID to, to verify you know, we have different levels of depth because in the UAE, we know that they want to use an Emirates ID card. So if you can't sure. support that, then there's no point doing business there. Sure. You're not going to help your customer base. And same in Colombia, we keep mentioning, you need to have the driving license. Sure. And if you don't, then you're in trouble. So we believe that we have the greatest depth of support from a coverage perspective globally. I agree, not everybody has the same level of data outside of IDs. And you go back into kind of knowledge-based authentication and, you know, traditional database means that's not our focus. We're focusing on the ID, which everybody has, their face, which everybody has. And I think that those difficulties that you've mentioned there about data not being readily available is pretty strong justification for why knowledge-based authentication and traditional databases are not really a viable means of verification in in the modern day. I I think if we were to take a step back and we're having this conversation five, ten years ago, would you say to me, you know, what what do you think the future's going to hold for KYC? And I'd say, you know what, we're going to be verifying ourselves and logging into accounts with our mother's maiden name or the name of our first pet. Sure. You know, it's just not going to happen. <laughs> it's going to be with facial biometrics, which is what Jumio does, sure. uh, which totally replaces the need for, for passwords or logging in, two-factor authentication, KBA, all of those sort of things. Sure. Or other forms of biometrics, you know, whether it be fingerprint, voice, iris, you know, vein, the list goes on. But um, that, that's kind of why I believe you're, you're right. Databases aren't particularly reliable anymore. So I guess we're on the first day of Cybos. There's a few more coming. Is there anything that you've seen so far or anything that you're looking ahead and, and see as a trend or something that interests you? It's only day one, so there's a, there's a lot more to go. And I think by the sound of my voice, you could probably tell that I've spent most <laughs> of my time talking rather than uh-huh. actually listening. So I'm, I'm certainly going to try and do more listening uh, over the next couple of days. But I, I think the general theme of the event, you know, focusing on AI and a, and a hyper-connected world are obviously very important aspects globally, you know, within the UK fintech market, financial services, but also more specifically as well for, for Jumia. Because sure. as everything becomes more and more online, as I've mentioned already, there's got to be a continual focus on making sure you're dealing with the right people, making sure that there's trust and safety between the business and the consumer. And all of these things are, are where Jumio obviously play. So I'm, I'm very interested just to see kind of what the talk track is. I'm interested to see, you mentioned Germany and the strict regulations. Mm. I'm interested to see what talk there is about other regulators, maybe relaxing their, their processes, becoming more like the FCA, mm. who have been very inclusive, very kind of forward thinking in what is allowed mm. in terms of digital onboarding and, and just sort of enabling fintech to grow rather than restricting it with tight regulations. So those are the types of things that I'm looking forward to hearing more about. Where is Jumio heading? Because in some ways you might say, we are in this weird intermediate half offline, half online world. Yeah. It's likely at some point that we get to a digital identity. Where does Jumio fit into that future? 
I think that there's definitely going to be more and more of a focus on, on digital identities. I don't think it's going to happen overnight. And I, I think we've been talking about it for quite a while. And there's definitely movement in that area. And uh, I'm excited to see what, what happens and when. The nearer future is going to be a continuous focus on biometrics, right. moving away from the legacy means of verification, such as data, as we've said, one-time passwords, SMS, two-factor authentication, which are more susceptible to man-in-the-middle attacks and things sure. like that. So whether it be face, which is what we're focusing on, or the other types of biometrics that I mentioned, I think that's you know, the, the future of, of digital identity verification leveraging those you know real world aspects which we do anyway via your apple iphone sure. you know hundreds of times a day without even thinking about it so and so i guess looking the other way what is it that you <clears throat> wish you'd have known five or ten years ago that you you know now in terms of jumio business or me general well either i'm it's fascinating now you've turned it personal it's like, <laughs> yeah it's gonna now be yeah exactly um <laughs> I think from a business perspective, it would be nice to have known the crypto wave was coming uh, of 20, late 2017, early 2018. If, that, if I had known that, I'd probably Buy be sat in this chair. And, uh... yeah, I'd probably be on a yacht somewhere, especially as... Driving you know, a Lambo, surely. 100%. That's a, that's a conversation I have quite a lot. Lambo or Ferrari. I'm definitely a Lambo man if I could afford it. So yeah, seeing the, seeing the crypto wave would have been pretty nice. Uh-huh. From a personal perspective, well, what would I know now? I, I think... I would tell my younger self to breathe and that you're going to come across many, many different challenges of all different scale and it's going to be extremely tough, extremely daunting. But guess what? There's always tomorrow. And as long as you're learning from the challenges, even if you're successful or or not, just keep learning and, and keep breathing and keep going. That's, that's what I would tell myself. I think that's a lesson for us all somewhere there. <laughs> Breathe. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, Simon, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank and, you very uh, Good much. luck with Jumio. Thank you very much. And that concludes our Cybos London FinTech special. Thanks to all of the guests, Tom, Amir, Andrew, Bud, Simon Curitan, Todd Latham, and Simon Winchester. Join us next week, where we'll have more insights from Cybos coming to you from London this year. Don't forget to check out the trailer for our documentary, 11 Years, showcasing the rise of UK FinTech since the crash in 2008. Stay tuned for the full film on the 3rd of October at 11years.film. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.